should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out. And it's also hashtag FOF or FOF. Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week to week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Welcome to Week to Week, the political roundtable from the Commonwealth Club of California for Monday, January 25th, 2016. This is our first Week to Week of 2016. We've been blessed with much to talk about. <laughs> I mean, this was the week in which Republican presidential frontrunner Donald Trump actually said he could shoot someone and still not lose any votes. So. Dick Cheney tried that. Look where he is. <laughs> uh, thank you for joining us here today Good in buddy. San Francisco. I'm John Zipperer, your host for Week to Week and the Commonwealth Club's Vice President of Media and Editorial. On today's program, we are going to talk about the latest in that reality show that is our presidential campaign. We'll also discuss Governor Brown's State of the State speech as well as the State of Our State. Super Bowl 50, you've probably already been dodging that if you came from over across the bay. Some political fallout from the Flint, Michigan water problems and other political news. So of course, the Commonwealth Club of California is a place of a broad range of views. We know we don't all believe the same thing. We welcome that. So any views you hear expressed up here by us are those only of the speakers and not of the Commonwealth Club itself. Now let's meet our panelists for today. I'm going to start on the far end of the stage with Melissa Kane. She's a contributor to CBS San Francisco, her mornings with Melissa. She's also the host of the Cheat Sheet. She's an attorney. And she's on Twitter at Melissa Kane One. Next to her is Dr. James Taylor, director of African American Studies and a professor of political science at the Department of Politics for University of San Francisco. And actually, you were mentioning you yeah, teacher Berkeley. Berkeley as well. As well. He, he's got. He's a commuter teacher. <laughs> I just came from class. <laughs> <laughs> and between James and I is C.W. Nevius or Chuck Nevius, a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle. He's on Twitter at C.W. Nevius. So there are question cards that are spread throughout the room. Please write down and submit questions. I do my best to ask as many as possible. Now on to our roundtable. So. I've said this before, politics is a serious business, um, and choosing the leader of a republic is a major, major decision. 
But I want to start by reading a quote, and I swear this is a quote by <laughs> Sarah Palin in her endorsement of Donald Trump. <laughs> she said, again, I emphasize, quote, because a weak-kneed capitulator-in-chief has decided that America will lead from behind, period, and he who would negotiate deals with the skills of a community organizer may be organizing a neighborhood tea yeah, well, he deciding that America would apologize and as part of the deal, as the enemy sends a message to the rest of the world that they capture and we kowtow and we apologize and then we bend over and say, thank you, enemy, unquote. Um, <laughs> thus ends our reading from the book of Palin, chapter four, verses <laughs> 2008. Um, let's start with the presidential race and let's start with the odd speech aside, the, the meaning of, I mean, Sarah Palin has a big following among Republicans. Donald Trump has a big following among Republicans. James, it's not necessarily the same following, is it? That's a good question. Uh, and I haven't looked at the demographics of yeah. who the Palin and Trump start, uh, constituents are, but I would imagine that they are closer oh. than, we, than we think. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, Trump has largely become the tribune of, of the, the group I talked about last time we were here, which is this suddenly uh, uh, exposed uh, element of young, well, middle-aged white Americans who are suffering from this unexpected pattern of self-inflicted damage through suicide and opiates and yeah. alcohol. And this is part of a dilemma. But I think it's true that just because they're paranoid doesn't mean that people aren't really chasing them. <laughs> uh, this segment of the society, uh, Jesse Jackson, as much as he's been lambasted as a race beta, tried in the 80s in the Rainbow Coalition to bring the Appalachian and uh, you know, working class white element into the Rainbow Coalition. Um, that's who this is. These are the same people that were Hillary supporters against Obama. And now they've abandoned Hillary uh, and, and now they're supporting uh, Trump because he's speaking that sort of you know, uh, in my own research uh, on nationalism, he's sort of speaking to this sort of white hot rage uh, nationalism, uh, this sense of paradise being lost. So I think in a real way, Trump um, articulates for that same segment. In other words, uh, Trump has become the vacuum for all of these different elements, the, the Duke followers, uh, the Aryans, you know, Trump is like, whosoever hates, let him come. <laughs> you know? um, it's supposed to be just the opposite, whosoever will, let him come. And, uh, and you, know, I've, you know, I don't like to play with race. I don't like to provoke race. I don't like to talk about it as a, a, an accusation. I don't. Um, but when I see uh, Trump wearing that hat and behaving the way he is that says, make America great again, I go W-H-I-T-E, make America white again. And I think that's what people aren't seeing, that Donald Trump is not playing with us. He's telling us who he is, and we're all laughing. Well, and, and we have seen, we, I mean, we've seen uh, there's a white supremacist group that is yeah. endorsing him and yeah. putting out, I think they're creating videos in, in support of him. Melissa? Is this because I'm from Georgia? <laughs> it's Donald I'm from Trump. Georgia. I'm supposed to talk about sentence. the Klan here? What's going on? <laughs> no. uh, that was, that was so serious. Yeah. Well, yeah. first of all, just to, to, on the Sarah Palin issue, 
Um, here's the thing. I mean, one of the attacks on Trump is that he's not this, he's not a real conservative, right? There's just been this attack on his, on his, you know, bona fides as a conservative because he's, he has, you know, invited Hillary to his wedding and things like that. Um, and so what Sarah Palin brought to the table was a, a bit of legitimacy as of him as a conservative. And do I think he's going to get a lot more votes because of it? Not necessarily, but I think a Ted Cruz would have really liked that endorsement yeah. instead. Um, so at the end of the day, maybe it's a bit of a wash, but I think it does give him a little bit more of a conservative, uh, you know, with a capital C card for folks who are inclined maybe to vote for him, but who weren't sure if they could really trust him. He, she sort of helps them feel better about their vote. Mm -hmm. so in terms of this, of these, I mean, you never know who's going to, Who's going to endorse you? Um, I don't know if, and, and I don't want to make too close a comparison here, but there, I don't know if you guys remember Chris Daly. He was a supervisor here in San Francisco. He was really polarizing, and he used to get, you know, he'd get mad at a certain candidate, like a, like an Ed Lee, and he'd be like, I'm so mad. I hate that guy so much. I might endorse him. You know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so endorsements are a funny thing, right? They're, you know, sometimes you can't always control them, and sometimes they're not always welcome. And I'm not saying that Trump isn't attracting that kind. I think that to some degree, his rhetoric really does invite, you know, invite those folks. Um, he's try, he's he's at least issued, I think, a sort of cease and desist or a request to desist for some of these groups. His okay. campaign has, I think, seeing how sort of toxic that can be. But but you know, it's one of these things you can't really control. And if somebody wants to get in there and you know do damage or you know attempt to help, it's not a lot you can do. Not a lot you can do about it. But you know, is it a surprise to anyone that? that this is a group that, you know, that these groups are, are supporting him. I'm not, I, I don't think so. I don't know if anyone here has saw that and was like, that's outrageous. Like, no, that's kind of, yeah, that's probably, yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> a group that would be okay with him. Well, I think we're overlooking that people have forgotten that this is Sarah Palin's uh, entire political uh, emergence here is all part of the Tina Fey full employment. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, a couple of weeks ago, I hosted a, I was the, the moderator of a panel with Steve Schmidt, who was the uh, kind of the brains behind the John McCain uh, campaign, who unfortunately was also the brains behind picking Sarah Palin, and he owns up to that. <laughs> but uh, since the, uh, the movie Game Change, he was played by Woody Harrelson and so forth. But I was very surprised at this panel that he said, A, you guys are not taking Trump seriously enough, and B, I think he's going to be the candidate. And uh, David Axelrod just wrote a thing in the New York Times today saying, I totally underestimated this guy. I mean, so many narratives that we had, Hillary's inevitable, uh, you know, Bernie's just a quixotic, crazy candidate out there someplace, Trump will arc across the sky and then fall to earth, you know, Cruz, if he turns his guns on someone like Trump, that'll be the end of it, you know, Rubio will rise. None of these things are happening. And at this point, you have to wonder how this is going to shake out. And... Trump has proved to be a lot more resilient than people thought. And he's now, I mean, his basic campaign, and I'll let somebody else talk, but his basic campaign is, look at me. I mean, that's all, that's all he's really saying. And Sarah Palin is perfect. Look at me, I got Sarah Palin. You know, look at me. Today he's saying, I may, I may not even come to the next debate. And I, you know that the, whoever's putting that on is freaked out because Trump is the card, right? He's, what are you talking about not coming to the next debate? The idea of shooting something, I mean, he's just... There was a New Yorker thing that said he was actually trying to get out of the candidacy by saying more and more outrageous things. And he's like, I can't, whatever I say, I said, we're going to, you know. He's like, I'm going to shoot somebody. Yeah, that yeah. didn't work. And I'll it didn't shoot work. somebody. That didn't work either. So, yeah, he's, I, 
I it does remind me of the old WKRP in Cincinnati episode. <laughs> <laughs> Arthur but, Carlson running for city council or whatever at some point decides he doesn't want to win. So he <laughs> then has his staff like call up people and, and spread bad rumors about him. So, but this, real quickly, this speaks to the, what we in political science are calling political polarization in, in our politics. Um, it's, it's a real issue, I think, in American politics when you look at the pattern of the 64 election was a landslide, so was the 66 election, uh, and then Nixon's re-election. I mean, Nixon's election in 68. So you had this, this back and forth. Then you had, for example, Jimmy Carter following Richard Nixon's corruption. Jimmy Carter, the religious guy. We go from one extreme to the other. Corrupt Nick, Richard Nixon, Jimmy Carter. We got uh, immoral Bill Clinton, Christian George Bush. We got black, you know, Barack Obama, Donald Trump. Right. And so this is something about us as the electorate, as much as it is about these political leaders, um, that since 64, that election was a critical in political science, a critical election. And that that was a definitive election that I think I might be wrong, but I think 2016 is going to look like 64, because I just think the American people will reject Donald Trump. It is very interesting to say this, especially because uh, Melissa Kane is going to be uh, moderating a program with E.J. Dion, who is, in fact, Right, got a book out now that is about uh, how that 1964 election has changed the ground rules for the Republican Party, how they're still living in that world and being driven by the whole rejection of the establishment yeah. and you know the, the uprising, yeah. if you will, of the populist conservative movement. And, and Barry, and, go ahead, go ahead. Well, so in 64, that's when Barry Goldwater was like yeah. killed by Lyndon Johnson. And, uh, you know, one of the things that when I look at this election and I think about uh, Ted Cruz, for example, who's, who's whole, I mean, his whole thing is right out of Barry Goldwater's playbook. It's we get, we're sick of the moderates. We need to get, what we need to do is get more conservative, right? We need to appeal to those, to that quiet majority. And remember his slogan, you know, in your heart, you know, he's right. You know, he wanted this like <laughs> silent majority. And then the Democrats had their slogan mm-hmm. in your guts you know he's nuts uh, <laughs> <and> so, <laughs> um so so there you know he and and this idea that like we need to get we need to get more conservative we need to get like get back to our roots and, and really and fight harder is a lot like is i see ted cruz so much in that and so this idea that you know what happens when the when the general public gets their shot at somebody who's like that versus somebody who's like Hillary Clinton, who's who's to some degree similar to Lyndon Johnson in the sense that she knows how to pull the levers and she sort of represents a status quo to some degree. And then he represents a sort of very, very super conservative, super conservative person, um, how that plays out in a general election. And, and, and you know, history, history shows it, it doesn't bode well, although you never know. But yes. But yes. Um, I will be interviewing E.J. Dion. <laughs> Please come. Yeah. Uh, but his whole book is from, you know, from Goldwater to now, nice. where the right went wrong is the name. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, speaking of changes in, in the Republican Party, the establishment has, I think, kind of started to come out of from behind the shadows and choosing sides in the whole Trump versus Cruz thing. Uh, former Senator, well, minority and majority leader, Bob Dole, uh, the Republican presidential candidate in 96, you probably saw this story this week, he uh, harshly criticized Ted Cruz, calling him an extremist, said no one in Congress likes him, and he would cause, quote, catastrophic Republican losses down <laughs> ticket if he were the nominee. Um, so we have seen a number of these Republican establishment folks who seem to be making the decision that if I have to choose between Ted Cruz and <laughs> Donald Trump, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's kind of it. You know, a number of them are then going with Donald Trump. 
One that didn't is National Review magazine. You know, William F. A Buckley's little. <laughs> a little. Just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> like the Basically cover. an entire special issue ripping on Donald Trump. Um, does this matter or are these people who are so angry, feel so disenfranchised, Bob Dole saying, don't vote for that candidate is for them even more of a reason to vote for that candidate. Well, and this isn't a revelation that, that Cruz is not popular. I mean, he said that when he came into the Senate. I don't need more friends. I'm not looking for 99 more friends. That's understandable. What I'm kind of interested in is, I think if you look at the directory of, of presidential elections, very often we see, and the Republicans are playing this in a big way. Cruz is playing this in a big way. Trump is playing this in a big way. We've lost our way. We're not, we're not the country we used to be. In fact, we're failing. We're going the wrong direction. And Obama, in his State of the Union, you know, rebutted that. We're the most powerful military nation. Nobody else is even close. And often, I think, in a, in a, in a presidential election, you find that the, the message of hope resonates. And it's interesting that Marco Rubio, who has been kind of gloom and doom, just this week has kind of turned it around and is telling the story of his parents and, and of himself and of immigrants who've come to this country and so forth. And I'm wondering if, as this doesn't unfold, we don't find that the people who have a more positive message, it's easier to vote for a more positive message that, hey, it's not so bad. In fact, we need to, we need to improve what we're doing, but even so, we're not failing. We're not falling off the cliff. And I, I think it'll be interesting to see if that, if that continues to play. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. We've got a couple questions from the audience, and I'm going to kind of put them together because they're really along the same uh, line, which is, uh, you know, say Donald Trump might be viable as a nominee. Do you think he's viable as a general uh, uh, election candidate? What do we know anything about? I should look at Mr. Political science professor. Yes. Do we know anything about the numbers of you know th those folks you talk about as this, you know, his supporters and his potential supporters? Are they large enough to put him over the top? And I'm thinking also when you have a candidate like that who is very polarizing, that also generates some folks for to vote on the other side, whether it's Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton. So what do, what do you think about him? Were he to actually get to the general election, is it a if if Trump got the nomination? Yeah. I think it would mobilize Democrats into a landslide defeated Republicans. I, I, if Trump wins, um, it would be unprecedented in terms of all of the decorum of 230 years of American politics. Mm -hmm. um, it would be the first time the American people elected a demagogue who ran as a demagogue. We've had them before. Mm -hmm. Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, David Duke, Sarah Palin, Barry Goldwater. And America has said no, 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 no. And we are suddenly going to see the American people who are politically mature and paying attention 
Um, th those who vote are politically mature, not, not, not rank-and-file Americans, but those who participate are clearly educated people. And I don't think that the average American who is white wants to be associated with this history. And I think, you know, Professor Taylor is a lot smarter than I am. But, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. <laughs> but we keep waiting for that moment. We keep waiting for that moment when people say, okay, this is ridiculous. This guy is just playing us. Come on. Sooner or later, yeah. someone's going to stand up. The Republican establishment is begging them to find someone and get behind him, win over the field, get it down to a fewer, a fewer number of candidates, make a push, and expose this guy for what he is. And it's not happening. And it's very concerning. And real quickly, one of the things I heard someone suggest the other day was that many of these extra candidates who have no chance of winning are actually helping Trump because he's weighing down Rubio and, you know, some of the others. I wish John Kasich could get out of the, out of the, the shadows. I think he would be good for this country. I've heard he's... What? Sorry, One ahead. of the superpowers of Donald Trump is making Marco Rubio look moderate. <laughs> 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 Which is not true. <laughs> he ran as a Tea Party candidate right. in Florida. Right. And remember that first debate? Donald Trump was like, we're going to build a wall. It's going to be an amazing wall. And Rubio <laughs> said, yes, and we're going to use ankle bracelets, too. And it was like, wait a minute. Like, how? I'm going to double down. Like right, the, right, right. Is like the normal right. candidate in right. all of this. Right. Um, I mean, that's how far sort of over to one side we are. Um, here's the thing, uh, a couple of issues. First, remember too that the that in terms of like delegates and how like the machinery works for the Republican Party, they can on like the day of the convention, like the they, they like roll call, pledge of allegiance, Star Spangled Banner. Okay, we're gonna adopt some new rules here, and the new rules are blah blah blah. A bunch of stuff is gonna screw Donald Trump. Okay, like there's, remember, and I'm not saying, you know, put your faith in uh, the machinations of the Republican Party, because Lord only knows, but but there are ways for the establishment, if, if it's close, um, to, you know, tilt some things yeah. in favor of another candidate, again, maybe a Rubio, who, again, now looks reasonable uh, in light of everything. So, um, so I wouldn't necessarily put it, you know, Trump could win the popular vote and still not get the nomination. And don't get me wrong, it would be pitchforks and, you know, 1968 <laughs> Chicago Democratic right. Convention, cars overturned all over again. But it didn't change who the nominee was, right? Uh, the nominee will still be the nominee. So, so there's, there's sort of that issue out there as well. And I think in the last eight years, we've been spoiled a little bit in that we a lot of Democrats have voted for Barack Obama and remember before Barack Obama mostly what we voted think how we voted was against stuff right we don't really traditionally vote for <laughs> anyone um, we vote against people and so when it comes to Donald Trump you would have probably a lot of Republicans staying home who couldn't stomach voting for Hillary or Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump and then you'd have a lot of people I agree with the professor mobilized on the left to vote against Donald Trump because he's that polarizing and and if you look at the polls if you believe the polls he uh, would lose big against either of uh, of the candidates yeah. big against Bernie and big against Hillary again this the polls are what they are they're taken with a grain of salt but but it's not necessarily true that that there are enough numbers of Trump supporters who vote who are registered who have ID you know in a lot of states um, to actually get to the polls and and make that happen so I, I would I would agree that even if he were to get the nomination, which again is questionable in light of this sort of machinations, um, if he were to even get the nomination, that he would be a successful general election candidate. Yeah. And I think you've seen, just in the last couple of weeks, you've seen a couple of uh, big hitter political columnists go out and interview John Kasich just to hedge their bets. 
with the idea that if this really is a traditional election, we're going to have the Herman Keynes of the world, we're going to have these people, kind of fringy candidates, but eventually we're going to coalesce around someone, the grown-up in the room, which is which Kasich keeps saying, it just isn't happening. And that's, and that's the part of it that I don't know if it's a change in, in, in political thought or if it's just such an unusual year in such a big, uh, big field, but, you know, that's the idea, is that there'll, there'll be all this sound and fury, and then Kasich or someone like that, yeah. Rubio, yeah. who's much more conservative yeah. than people think, yeah. might step in. Yeah. I, I thought it would be Rubio. I've been, the whole, this whole season, I've said Rubio. That's who I'm calling, that's who I'm sticking with. I think when Trump puts his gaze on you, your time in the front is limited. <laughs> I mean, we've seen that happen to Perry, Rick Perry, Bye-bye. We saw that happen to Ben Carson recently. I think I said here, maybe in October, that he won't be around in December, and bye-bye, he's gone. Yeah, Bush. Pretty much because that's what happened to Herman Cain. Uh, we've had the Michelle Bachman and Carly Fiorina moment. Whoa, I'm here, guys, you know. And then, and then you had these sort of exchange. It's, I mean, in other words, 16 looks a lot like 12 in terms of the character who's on, who's on, who are on the scenes. Even the billionaire running for the nomination. Who, to me, you know, Donald Trump is, is one part Ross Perot, I think, uh, one part Mitt Romney, and two parts George uh, Wallace. Wow. Ooh. That's how wow. I think, that's what we're seeing, because we've seen this before. We've seen a billionaire come out of nowhere, get us all excited in 1992 named Ross Perot. We've seen this Trump run before in terms of the euphoria around this billionaire who seems to be quirky and weird and a little different. He offended blacks into saying, you people, and everybody's like, whoa, and then he, I'm all ears and all of that. You remember that stuff? Ross, we've seen some of this before. And, and I think, um, unlike uh, Ross Perot, uh, Donald Trump's movement has the potential to maintain itself as a movement, even if he loses. And that, to me, is more ominous for social relations in the society after. Is, it, is if, that, if his following becomes a movement, then it, it probably already is, if you believe the FBI. So, you, you know, this is not going to go away if Trump loses. And it might get worse if he loses and they feel like he was cheated. FBI? You tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, is I think there, it was Napolitano, if you remember, it was Homeland Security. If you remember, when Obama first came in, she made, made a, a statement about, you know, right wing groups, domestic terrorism in America. And most of us said, let's not focus on them. Let's look outside. And of course, that's a different reality now. But as we look at the Republicans, and if they're not in disarray, they're certainly confused. I mean, everyone's confused. This should open the door for the Democrats to step right in. <laughs> And instead, what do we have? You know, we have this, this strange situation where Hillary can't open up any leadership. In fact, Bernie's got it going. And that, that ad with America, the, oh, yeah. why well, was yeah. tired, oh. a lump in my throat for heaven's sake. <laughs> oh. I mean, I, he's, a cynic like you? A cynic like me. Uh, well, it was, a, it was an artificial lump, but I felt I had to do it for journalism. <laughs> But, you know, Hillary's relying, and the media's starting to talk about the black vote in South Carolina being her firewall against Bernie. Mm -hmm. But uh, the rapper so. Killer Mike, um, whether you take him serious or not, is definitely uh, embracing Bernie, and he's conveying Bernie to younger people. Um, and he is very clear uh, that Bernie... I mean, there's this whole debate going on right now that people are suspicious of Tana Hasi Coates, who was here a few weeks ago. He's being celebrated, a MacArthur Genius Award, Book of the, uh, Book of the uh, Book Award of the Year. Um, and, and, and yet he come, he's come out this week, or in the last few days, and attacked Bernie Sanders for not taking a strong pro-reparations uh, position. 
And I'm thinking, why is that going to shipwreck Bernie when there's nobody else making uh, any endorsement of it either? There's actually the Green Party candidate does endorse reparations. And Ta-Nehisi Coates, some believe, is now playing for the Democrats, for the DNC, because he missed this candidate who's actually for reparations in the, in the campaign, and he doesn't say anything about Hillary not being for reparations. So the, the very idea um, that Bernie is being put, called to the carpet by black America at this time around a hypothetical scenario to me is strategically aimed at undermining his attraction that he's getting with the black vote. The same thing happened with Obama. Once Iowa happened, the black vote said, we are leaving the first black president and his wife and we're going to the real black president and his wife. And that's what happened in, in 2008. And so we can see that scenario following a similar pattern this time around. If Bernie does well in Iowa, the black American electorate will reconsider Bernie in the same way it left Hillary for Obama. It could do it again. And I think uh, it, the, the, the momentum is in that direction. What do you think the uh, black electorate would do if, there's two questions here, merged into one, if Michael Bloomberg runs as an independent? Uh, nothing. I think it'd be, it would be, <laughs> you know, a, a tree. That, was it saying that the tree that falls in the, in the forest? Okay, it was just my way of bringing up Michael Bloomberg. I, I, Bloom, I'm from New York. I was born and raised, if you okay. can't tell. But Bloomberg, no. He has no right. shot. He's got a hill to climb, doesn't he? I mean, it's, it's going to be tough to get the signatures. It's going to be tough to get on the ballot, all those kinds of things. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm very old, so I remember things, you know. You're over 30. I'm over 30. Um, <laughs> when I look at Bernie, I think of Eugene McCarthy. And, it, and the idea that an older, sort of gray-haired, experienced, angry grandfather kind of guy captures the Not imagination crazy. of the of a of a young electorate, and they're looking for something different, and it it may have legs. Boy, these people are enthused. Uh, <laughs> Governor Jerry Brown recently gave his uh, state of the state speech. It was all of 19 minutes. Um, I don't think, I mean, 19 which is, minutes. Which is actually up two minutes from is the it? last year. He's yeah. getting long-winded. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Bill Clinton would still be getting wound up. <laughs> be all the preamble, yeah. He'd be still selling hello in 19 minutes. <laughs> um, so what, for any of you, what did we learn about the speech and what he wants to do in his remaining time in office? Anyone? Well, I think, he made, it, I think he made it pretty clear that he wants to maintain what's going on. He didn't mention high-speed rail, which has been, you know, a the third rail of the Jerry Brown <laughs> administration. Um, he basically said, we're going to have to learn how to pay for these things. But um, the LA Times wrote a thing saying he kind of blew off the speech, that he doesn't care about these things. It's not a big deal. And it's very Jerry to be yeah. kind of his own man and, and, and do that stuff. He's still popular. Uh, but I think uh, it's going to be steer the, steer the ship, status quo, not many new things. He did talk about a, a fifth term. He yep. did talk about it. He said he was actually going to try to change the law so he could run again a few times. So. Well, you know, people keep saying, you know, maybe Jerry Brown for president. And, you know, oh, Lord. Um, but here, he's already president, right? I mean, he's president of California. He, <laughs> he signs treaties. He signs climate accords. Like, it's kind of amazing. He, you know, he's got a good gig going here. But, but here's the thing, and, and I, I agree with you. It was a little disappointing. And he talked a lot about, uh, for example, he talked about, like, our pension crisis, our retiree health care crisis, which we all know is preventing us from having a truly balanced budget. There are billions and billions of dollars in these unfunded um, you know, promises that we've made. And he didn't offer, he just was talking, he's like, oh, this is a very big problem. 
next. Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Sir, I have a question. Uh, what exactly do you plan to do about that big old thing you were just talking about there? Um, so he didn't give any solutions to any of the problems that he was talking about. And he, he did talk about raising taxes for infrastructure because as gas prices go down, of course, our t- you know we, we rely on gas tax for road repairs and things. And, um, and we might need to raise taxes. Although my understanding is that he's been raiding that bucket of gas taxes <laughs> to pay for high-speed rail. High speed so rail. <laughs> it's not clear to me that voters are going to necessarily be too keen on yeah. on raising gas taxes or raising any kind of taxes when we're basically, you know, when the hole that's been created is because they're taking money out of infrastructure funding for roads and putting it into high-speed rail and because there's some very creative interpretation of what constitutes, like, transit money, basically. Uh, so... So he basically is indicating that he may be really open to to some kind of tax increase for transportation. He clearly said he was not going to be for an extension of Prop 30, which um, I think some people might have been uh, glad to hear. But um, but overall, you're right. It seemed, you know, for the eighth largest economy in the world, like I'm no big fan of <laughs> long speeches. But, um, you know, this one aside. But uh, <laughs> but it's but, you know, so 19 minutes for. Yeah. <laughs> he really was kind of like, whatever, guys, I got it. That was kind of. <laughs> yeah. they, they said in 1975, he spoke for 11 minutes his first time right. around and about 13 minutes his second time around. So this is actually Jerry Brown being long winded <laughs> uh, relative to his pattern of, of just not yeah. showing much interest in this. Uh, you know, he wasn't really interested in trying to convey some of his big ideas, um, uh, you know, and his whole commitment was to sort of maintaining the status quo. He did boast the two million net, uh, the, yeah. you know, the surplus of two million jobs, yeah. actually net gain, not, you know, fudgy, as Bush said, fuzzy math, but actually a net gain of two million jobs and boasted also uh, the unemployment rate or the jobless rate being cut in half. So uh, he, he definitely hit on some points, but. He didn't advocate uh, as as his as his father might have seen this as an opportunity to set an agenda. Uh, the Super Bowl is taking place here. Lots of people are going to come here and spend. Uh, it was a it was bad. I know, um, but we're not a sports program, obviously. But I do wanted to talk about this in terms of the way leaders have sold uh, what we're doing for it. Uh, there is a controversy, uh, maybe Chuck, you can tell us the controversy in terms of what San Franciscans will be paying for. And uh, what I saw was apparently Santa Clara, they negotiated a better deal. They're not paying anything for it. Is that right? Well, the supporters of the Super Bowl would say they negotiated a different deal. Yeah. <laughs> um, Santa Clara doesn't have, uh, I've, I've heard them say three hotels, basically, to to recoup the, the losses that are going to uh, for example, Santa Clara Convention Center is being used for free. There's a whole series of things they're going to be doing. So the idea was, the plan was, and I, I was, I was not nego- I was not consulted on this. Well, you I, I was oh, very surprised. Make that note. They didn't ask me about this, but uh, the idea was that you're going to have to give Santa Clara a break because they don't have the resources to to recoup the losses. San Francisco, meanwhile, has you know, a $10 billion tourist industry. We know how to do this. We'll get plenty of hotel. They're predicting and projecting uh, $5 million from hotel and sales tax, which they say would cover the, the cost of the infrastructure and so forth of the Super Bowl. Uh, to the surprise of no one, the costs have gone up. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. 
I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years, and uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody, and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis, is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? That's just always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Now, some enterprising politicians in San Francisco are saying, wait a minute, we need to renegotiate this. Um, Would any of those rhyme with Schmeren Schmeskin? <laughs> <laughs> yes, oddly okay, enough. Okay. Schmeren Schmeskin is one of the people involved in this. Also, Jane Kim. Uh, yeah, but the irony of this is that while we're pounding the table and saying, I am going to tell the NFL that we have to renegotiate this, they admit that the NFL could go, no, I don't think we're going to do that because it's been in place for a long time. Uh, I believe, I'm prepared to bet 25 cents right now <laughs> that we will make money on the Super Bowl. We will or won't? We, we will. Okay. We will make money on the Super Bowl. And again... The economic engine of San Francisco, we would love to say it's artists and, and you know, uh, tie-dye manufacturers, but it's tourism. <laughs> $10 billion a year of tourism. And the idea that we have been awarded the annual week-long biggest party in the United States is going to be huge for tourism. I think it's going to be a great thing. However, however, I think because it's here in the Bay Area, it, it stands the potential to be disrupted a lot by the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, I, we're in the Bay Area, and I just don't think we're really paying attention to the fact that Oakland was powerful enough in its political reaction to events from Oscar Grant on forward to take attention from New York City in the Occupy movement. It ends where? Oakland, California. Where did Black Lives Matter come from? Oakland, California. I argue, and have been 
for about six years, seven years, that it was the actual murder of Oscar Grant that starts all of this modern phase of the movement, that Black Lives simply attached itself to what was already going on five years before it got the idea. And most people confuse Black Lives for the larger struggle that it attached itself to. The Oscar Grant movement, January 1st, 09, in Oakland, largely supported by people from outside of Oakland, not Oaklanders, um, has been the, uh, the clearinghouse for all of these different competing and uh, uh, converging issues. Uh, Latinos uh, opposing Wells Fargo and its involvement in immigration tanks and holdings. All kinds of networks were in Oakland cooperating. And I've said this in several other places, that Oakland is the ground zero for all of this. And then to ex we just saw the Bay Bridge shut down within the last five days. Did you see that? They know what they're doing. They plan that very carefully, and you rest assured they will express themselves in, in Santa Clara. It's just too close. The weather's perfect. It's in, just too, in, it's too good to be true. In Santa Clara or here in San Francisco? I think they will. Well, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't yeah. know which site they would use, because I think politically it would be smarter to do it here to get the attention they want. But I just think you should be prepared for these kinds of um, demonstrations of some sort to get attention, because the whole world yeah, is watch, watching, yeah. and they are 12 to, let's say, 23 miles away from you know, 12 to 23 miles away from all of this. You think Black Lives Matter is just going to sit in Oakland and let people have a party across the bridge? They are coming. Um, we, and I don't even know anything about it. I don't have any inside information. <laughs> there might be some police in the room. I just want you to know I don't know anything. <laughs> is there an FBI file? I don't know. I don't know any of that stuff. Well, we, the, the argument about Santa Clara is that, the, look, Santa Clara has a 700, about $750 million budget. We have a $9 billion wow. budget. So the idea was that, you know, we could absorb basically a $5 million expense in exchange for all the San Francisco porn, right? All like the bridge and there's views and all, you know, we're going to drive out all the homeless people and like make it nice and pretty in San Francisco, <laughs> Epcot Center for everybody. And so we could absorb that, but in a way that they couldn't absorb a $3 million hit um, in Santa Clara. Right. And so that's why they were able to negotiate a reimbursement with the NFL, with the, with the sponsors of the program. And we were the host committee in San Francisco was only is going to reimburse for fire and for parks and rec. Right. But not police and not transportation, not transit. So uh, that was the sort of the idea that we're just bigger and like we can absorb it because, you know, like what's five million <laughs> for like, a fancy band city like us. So that was kind of, that's that was the thing. So uh, so that was kind of the thing. But in, and to Chuck's point, remember, there is no contract. <laughs> there is no contract between the city and the host committee. There's no contract between the host committee and the NFL. All we have, the only document memorializing any of this is the proposal. Like the, the request, you know, the, our, our sort of, here's what we would do if you, if you were to bring the Super Bowl here, submitted in 2013. Okay, there's otherwise like no paper. So the idea is that the supervisors are passing this resolution, like we demand a renegotiation three days before it starts, uh, is, you know, is, is a super late and also, you know, really unenforceable because there's just, it's all a lots of handshakes and like 
blue blazers with brass buttons, I imagine, <laughs> uh, you know, at the St. Francis Yacht Club. Uh, you know, lots of gentlemen's agreements, basically, behind all of this and really not a lot of paper. And so it's kind of a little freewheeling. And um, so we're, we're, it's going to be difficult to determine because a lot of people, you know, how do you, how do you calculate all those Airbnb money that ca- that's coming in? Uh, you know, there's going to be a little bit difficult to cop- to calculate, but in the, you know, in the wash, they're definitely, and they've already called, the Board of Supervisors has already called for an accounting of the event and sort of how much money it brings in, which I think would be really informative because we keep putting bids together for the Olympics and other kinds of events, and it would be helpful to have that kind of data um, for the future because we always hear that we're going to make money, but it's not always clear that that's actually what happens. And I think the, um, the general consensus is if you do a good job, you get the Super Bowl about every seven years. Mm-hmm. So this isn't just a one-time deal. If this, for, first of all, the NFL was dying to have it in San Francisco. They loved it when we had it. It's everything they liked everything about the game except for the game. They loved being in San Francisco when we had it before. They thought it was terrific. Then they went to Stanford Stadium and found out they were sitting on benches and <laughs> there were porta potties. Uh, <laughs> so now we've got this glittering stadium. So if it co- if it goes off well, and I think to Professor Taylor's point, there there probably will be you know demonstrations and so forth. But this will be my ninth Super Bowl, and I'm going to tell you the security there yeah. is incredible. Yeah. So getting into Roger Goodell's press conference and disrupting it like you did with Barely, I don't think that's going to happen. Now, you may have a demonstration at, uh, at the city down, in, down at the Embarcadero. That may happen. They may block the Bay Bridge again and so forth. But in terms of the wheels and levers of the yeah, Super Bowl, I, agree. I don't think that's going to happen. Still... It's, it's an opportunity to get attention. I don't think there's any question that that will be valuable for, for their cause. Hopefully they will have you know, something that they'll want to uh, get out of that more than just anger. But uh, Super Bowl is a big, big juggernaut, and it's going to be tough to derail that. We'll see how San Francisco likes it. I think that's the big question. How, now that we've all, I, I compared it to Chicken Littles, we've all done the Chicken Littles, you know, we've all done, the, oh my God, traffic's going to be terrible. Well, today it wasn't so bad, but traffic's going to be terrible, it's going to be a mess, and they're going to take over the city, and well, let's see. Let's see what happens, and let's see if we make money, and let's see if we kind of like being the host, because we do this all the time. This is pretty much San Francisco's, you know, forte. It'd be even cooler if we had a football team here. Yeah. yeah, that's what I said. The only bad thing is, you know, we don't get to watch much professional football here. We have to watch the 49ers. So. Hey, but we have, <laughs> <laughs> hey, but we have a new coach and a new a new system coming. So let's see what happens. I think the tourist folks are excited, right? Who wants a home team, right? We want all the money, <laughs> yeah. the money from bring, elsewhere. Yeah. Bring it all yeah. in. Bring them in. Yeah. Um, let's move to a different location for another local story that has become national, and that is in Flint, Michigan, where. A, I believe, correct me if I have any of these details wrong, the uh, city leaders decided to change the source of the water for the city in order to save some money. And unfortunately, that meant river water that was untreated coming through and stripping lead from the pipes. There's a lot of blame that's being put, spread around. Um, and certainly, currently, Erin um, Brockovich, remember her? Yeah. She's involved in this. I just watched that movie this past weekend, so... <laughs> I would not want to be on the other side of the negotiating table with her. Um, But uh, maybe uh, if I could go to the lawyer first, Melissa, um, what is some of the the political mess that not just Rick Schneider, the governor of Michigan, has to deal with, but, you know, you talk about there not being a paper trail really for the Super Bowl. Was this stuff done by folks 
imposing rules or was this a contract they made with someone who can be held accountable because they are carrying out this thing? Or what do we know about this? Uh, well, it's an incredible bureaucracy. I mean, it actually was, it was the, the city manager. There was also the city mayor. There was also the Michigan, basically environmental agency. I think it's like Miqua or something like that. Um, so basically, um, back in 2013, the city council of Flint votes, they want to get money from a brand new fancy pants location, which is water from directly from Lake Huron. And instead of going through Detroit. So, so let's call it the lake water. That's the new fancy way they're going to do it. So they do this and the, the Detroit folks are really mad and they try to keep, they try to force them to like keep their contract with Detroit. And they say, no, 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 we want to move. They say, okay, fine. So Detroit water, we're done with you. We're going to, we're going to sign to like go with the fancy new water. And Detroit says, okay, well in one year from today, and again, this is like April, 2013, they said, one year from today, your contract is going to expire with us. And then I'm not saying we're not going to give you water anymore, but at that point, the contract is kind of done and we're going to have to sort of either go or not go sort of based on no paper. Right. Right. So one year later, it's April, 2014. And now the city of Flint has to either stay with Detroit water and like with like no contract um, or go to the Flint water because the fancy new water from the lake, the, the new sort of lake establishment isn't going to be ready till 2016. So they got 2014 to 2016 to kind of do something there. And again, they could stay with Detroit and kind of renegotiate stuff or they could use their Flint water resources. And this is the decision. This is one of the critical decisions here is they decide to use the Flint water resources. They decide they could save money by using this sort of basically sort of not, I won't say defunct, but sort of dilapidated Flint water you know, processing plant at their, at their, you know, at, through the river. So that's why the sort of the change happened. So in April, 2014, they flipped the switch and boom, they're now using Flint river water and they're just going to do it for two years until the fancy new water plant is ready. And by the way, there's, that's still the plan. They still plan to go in 2016 in June, 2016, uh, to the new fancy new plant. So they start using the water. So again, sort of like in terms of like political points, this is one, right? The mayor says, no, we're not going to stay with Detroit water, which is safe and we know is fine. We're going to start using this, you know, kind of gross old Flint water <laughs> that we know. And the, the Michigan Environmental Quality Agency said, no, 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 everything is fine. We've tested it and everything is fine. The problem is <laughs> that... They're supposed to keep records about like where the pipes go, right? So the, not everybody in Flint is affected by this, just the people who are getting their water through these horrible lead pipes. And they're supposed to keep records about like who's getting what water from what pipe. So you can test things like this when there are specific pipes posing problems. Problem is in Flint, Michigan, those records they're legally required to keep so that we can track who's getting the crap water. The records are kept on four, and this is not, this is totally true, 45,000 index cards, handwritten index cards. <laughs> swear <laughs> to God, some going back to the turn of the century. So yes. people are saying this water's crap and the agency's saying, no, 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 we've tested it. The problem is they don't know which ones to test, mm. right? Because all the data showing what house is getting what water is on these dumb index cards that no one can figure out. So they effectively have no records. So the environmental quality, the, the state quality agency is going, well, you know, this looks totally fine to us, but you're testing the wrong damn places. So that's the problem. So the, there's this fight that breaks out between the mission, the state agency and the EPA. And the EPA is going, this is crap. And the agent, state agency is going, no, 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 everything's totally fine. We totally need to test this more. People raise hell. 
They ask the Flint, Michigan, the Flint City Council says, we fine, screw it. We're, we want to go back to Detroit. Like, let's just forget it all. Let's go back to Detroit water. And this Wh- is whoever it. says that. Right? Right. They totally <laughs> did. They were like, under, using any means necessary. This is what the resolution, any means necessary. We got to get out of this crap water and we got to get back to Detroit water. This is March 2015. And to your point about the receivership, the city manager says, nope, nope, the water's fine. The state agency assures me the water's totally fine. So ignore, ignore, ignore. More studies come out, more fights between the state agency and the EPA. Finally, in October of last year, they finally switch to the Detroit water. So in the course of all of this, the eight, three people at the agency have resigned. Um, now the issue is there were lawsuits against the mayor of the city for making the decision. There are lawsuits against people in the Environmental Quality Agency, the state one, as in their own personal capacity, right? Normally when you sue a city, you know, a, a, you know, the mayor, whatever, people do it all the time. They sue the president all the time, whatever. It's in their official capacity. This is in their personal capacity. Like this is malicious. They say, you knew it. You, you knew that you didn't have the right records. You knew you weren't testing the right places and you did it anyway. And it's malicious and we're suing you as well. And so the reason it goes back to Governor Snyder is because he's the one who appoints the head of that state protection aid that's state environmental agency and they say you should have stepped in and told your people to like get it together and you know and and act more more quickly on this in in terms of like the actual connection between like test results and the governor a little more tenuous but but that's why it made its all its whole way up so as you can see in this process there's like 10 different decision points where something could have happened uh, that could have been helpful for these folks and it didn't and that is why we're sort of in the position we are today. And, and there have been uh, claims made that the reason Flint has been so slow to get this addressed is because it's, I don't know if it's a majority African-American. Yeah, 60, 61% African-American yeah. opposed to it. Um, coincidence, possibility, I mean, what? what it's kind of like Katrina. Without knowing, I, I think I'm the environmental saying. conditions that people were living in predate the crises, and the yeah. crises just sort of brings it out. Um, I mean, we are talking about a city that is yeah, economically. I mean, Michael Moore, has, that's his home, yeah. and he's tried to bring attention to the problems of Flint going back, really, to FDR in 1944. Oh, really? If you really want to talk about Flint, it goes way back to FDR. But there's a long history of, of you know, labor activism, et cetera, there, working class communities. One of the interesting things is in this, the, 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 the politics is racial politics outside of the environmental issues. But if you look at who's impacted, yes, Flint has a majority black population, but it's significant white population who is poor is there too. And as America gets to see the face of these people as well, um, you know, the question is, do we have the empathy to, to push the political leaders into action? We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
I would just say I'm just so impressed. I've, I've never used fiduciary in a sentence in my life. I <laughs> you just did. I thought that? that was so impressive. That, that was amazing. No, it, but it's always the cover-up. You know, when, when something like this happens, you always say, how in the world could this have happened, but how could it have persisted? And that's inevitably, that's the problem that people see and say, come on, something better should have been done. Anybody can make a mistake. It's the idea of continuing it, justifying it, rationalizing it. That's where you get in trouble. Let's uh, try to get a few other final things in before we get to our news quiz. Um, Melissa, down in Texas, there have been some developments, I guess, just yesterday and today or today, today? in uh, the Planned Parenthood video case, if you remember <laughs> that. Uh, Carly Fiorina thinks she does. Um, tell, the, tell us what, what the two decisions were. Do you know her name is Carlton? I just want to point that out. I, didn't know that. I was like, I know. See, I didn't know that either. Yeah, uh, I was looking today to see what candidates qualified for what states. You know, you got to file some paperwork to be on the primary ballot. I was checking it out in, I think, Rhode Island, and um, and at Carlton Fiorina. FYI, just I feel like y'all should know. Uh, anyway, so today in Texas, so well, uh, back when you know, the Planned Parenthood videos first came out, the Texas state legislature impaneled a grand jury, and they said, please look into any wrongdoing here. We, we need to know, like, we need to ferret out any illegal activity. So today, the grand jury came back with its findings, and it was twofold. Number one, they said the, you know, the Gulf Coast Planned Parenthood, which was at issue, the Gulf Coast Planned Parenthood did nothing wrong, but we're going to indict the two people who actually made the videos, they actually are the ones who violated the law and they, that, are the, that are the problem. So uh, that plus like the, yeah, there you go. I'm fairly sure that's not what the legislature had in mind <laughs> when, they, when they asked the grand jury to look at this, but there you go. Uh, so that happened today. Also, the, you know, of course, there's a lawsuit as well where some folks from Planned Parenthood or the National Abortion Providers Network have sued uh, the, the folks who made the videos as well here in the Northern District. And uh, that's actually not going very well for the folks who made the videos uh, either. So I think they're, they're really getting it from all sides. But yeah, big development today. Okay. Um, again, this is not directly politics, but I think in the, the spirit of everything that we've been talking about in, in Flint and, and uh, the Black Lives Matter, the Academy Awards. Oof. Yeah. Are, you, are we all boycotting it or are we going to watch? Uh, it's, it's, a fun, it's interesting to watch. I mean, you get to see that black Americans are not are monolithic. Yeah. I, I never have. Oh, I mean, I think I've watched probably once when I was a kid. I just don't watch it because I don't care about Hollywood. You know, but um, uh, no, I, I think it's, you know, when you look at Chris Rock's position, his dilemma, um, he, his brother has come out and bluntly said, you know, he supports um, the, the protest um, and he's unequivocal about it. Even Chris Rock has come out and been very critical. So you can imagine this is this is like throwing talking about race, Br'er Rabbit in the in the briar patch mm -hmm. to throw Chris Rock in this scene. This is his perfect scenario. He will do just fine because this is how he flourishes. Oh, yeah. Um, but I think, you know, it. it raises questions for African-Americans to look inward to themselves and stop. And I think this is true about Black Lives Matter. Why in the 21st century is black America still trying to make moral appeals to the majority population in this country when they have the resources and can develop the resources at this point to create our own? See, that's what I think the Black Lives Matter young people need to do. And I'm, I'm sure at some point when somebody hears me, uh, they'll, they'll focus on me. Uh, but <laughs> but I've, been, I've been in this fight way before. Um, and it just seems to me that, you know, we, we've, we've put the, they say the cart before the horse. It seems to me that, um, you know, Black Lives Matter, much like black power, um, 
is an important development, but I just think it, it sort of lost its way in terms of not realizing, much like the Panthers, the Panthers' power was not their militancy. The Panthers' appeal was meeting the needs of the people with the programs. And Black Lives Matter at this point has been on the scene for years. It's made its point. Presidential candidates are talking about it. The president is talking about it. The UN is talking about it. All of those bright young people who are mostly college educated people, I think, should take their energy, turn it back to the community and begin community development and find ways to develop the black community at this point. And, and I'm a black middle, I'm a militant as you can get. I'm nobody's conservative and nobody's, you know, compromise, comprador. My book is Black Nationalism in the United States. That's exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, we have Stacey Dash on Fox saying, well, we need to get rid of BET and uh, black you know, media if we um, don't want a segregated society. And you can look at this book by, um, uh, it's a book called Critical Race Consciousness uh, by Gary Peller, who's a white scholar. And he really shows the ways in which the idea of America forging a kind of uh, nationality, a recognition of our our, our plurality, I guess, is a nice word to say it. Um, he says, basically, the integrationist way from the NACP to King pretty much won the debate between the two possibilities. But Stacey Jess and others are, are, are you know, struggling with this dilemma. It's sort of like, you know, at this point, um, black Americans have thousands of lawyers, thousands of Thurgood Marshalls. We got thousands of Martin Luther Kings. We got thousands of Ella Bakers. We got thousands and thousands and thousands of black people who have PhDs, engineers, accountants. There is nothing that black America needs that it does not already have, except the will to pull itself together to address this moment. Instead, Black Lives Matter is begging white America in the same way King did for a moral response to their crises instead of turning directly to themselves in community and begin developing the community in the tradition of the Black Panther Party and those other organizations at that time. Half is not clapping, half are, that's kind of cool. <laughs> I, I just think at some point African-Americans, uh, and me included, have to uh, turn to our own and begin to develop our communities in a healthy way. And with all this brain trust that's uh, articulating itself in the Black Lives Matter movement, I would love to see those young people turn to our young people in community and begin to educate and teach them. I think that's the long-term uh, formula for success for Black Lives Matter is to go to the programs. But as long as they continue to march and et cetera, maybe if they you know, sort of go tamp down after the 2016 election and, and do this, this might be their plan. But at some point they have to pivot off of protest and get to development. Can I ask, do you have any, you, you said you, you teach at Berkeley as well. Do you have any students who are involved in I don't know yet. I've only taught twice. I'm about to find out because I keep talking like this. They're going to let me know. Listen, we're going to be back in two weeks with more news quiz questions. Obviously, a lot more to talk about as we hit the first caucus and primaries. Um, so please join us again Monday, February 8th, right here in San Francisco. Thanks to our panel, Melissa Kane, Dr. James Taylor, and CW Media. Thanks to all of you here who came out to join us tonight, everyone watching on TV and listening online. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week -week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.
Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com. See you all next week. Tune into the Michelle Meow Show weekdays at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 Eastern on Progressive Voices. Thank you.